take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a great uh, passage of Scripture, great chapter. Uh, one of the most famous chapters in all of the New Testament. Because it's so encouraging, it's so positive, it tells us uh, what we can do to overcome our sin and to uh, live and step with the Spirit. And really, that's the theme of Romans chapter 8. And, and in the first 11 verses we looked at last week, it talked about the flesh versus the Spirit. And so within us, we have two things going on in battle with one another. Uh, for the rest of our lives, it's the outer flesh of our mortal body, this body that's dying and decaying, this body that gets, gets cancer, this body that gets sick, this body that's going to eventually die, uh, should, should we uh, uh, live long enough, should that time pass long enough, eventually our body will give way. But inside us also is a spiritual component, an inner person, uh, the, the spirit within us. And we have this battle as Christians going on between the flesh and the spirit, between our, our outer flesh and our inner person. And Scripture tells us, we learned last week, that we need to set our minds on the Spirit of God. We need to set our minds on spiritual things if we want to win these daily battles that we have with the sinful desires of our outer flesh. And here's a truth that I want you to understand because it impacts what we will discover today. The truth is this, that God has made it possible for us as believers to stop setting our minds on the desires of our, of our outer flesh for sin dwells. It is possible for you to stop setting your mind on the desires of the outer flesh, the temptations that we face every day. That's where sin dwells. And instead, God has given us as Christians the ability to set our minds on the inner person where the Holy Spirit dwells. And since this is true, since as believers we have this possibility, we have this ability, then this places certain obligations on us. And that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. We'll read through verse 17. If you found the place, would you stand with me please in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I'll read aloud in the New American Standard Bible, and you can follow along in your Bible or, or uh, on the screens behind me. Here's what we read. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd give us insight and understanding of your word so that these truths can become real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The very first thing the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, in verse 12 and the first part of verse 13, he tells us what we are obligated not to do. He says, you are not obligated to serve the outer flesh of your mortal body. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. It says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, why is that? I mean, why is it that if I just sort of do whatever it is I want to do, if I just sort of follow my natural inclinations, why is there a death sentence involved in that? Well, here's the reason. It is because whether you realize it or not, doing your own thing actually means that you are serving a destructive and deadly power within you. It is similar to drinking just a little bit of poison every day that tastes good. You might say, boy, this sure does taste good, and it won't kill me right away. And that might be right, but keep it up, and you will die. So it's similar to that. However, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have to serve the sinful, the deadly desires of your outer flesh. You have the power to say no. And so when you set your mind on the Spirit, what you're actually doing is instead of serving those deadly and sinful desires that are already within your outer flesh, you are choosing to serve another master. You're choosing at that moment in time to allow God to be your boss. What is that like? To, to set your mind on the Spirit and allow God to be your boss. Well, it's like this. If you're driving down the road and you find that your road is about to merge with another road to form one road. And yet you have the yield sign. When you put on your brakes, you are allowing somebody else to go first. And that's what it's like when you set your mind on the Spirit of God. You're putting on your brakes, and you're allowing somebody else to go first ahead of you. Allow him to be first. Here's another image that sort of conveys a, a, the same type of meaning. It's the image of dying to self. When you die to yourself, it leads to life. And you might say, well, that sounds ridiculous. You know, how can that be? How can dying to myself lead to life? That doesn't make any sense. Well, sure it does. Let me explain you see, the behaviors that your outer flesh want you to engage in, those behaviors lead to death. And if you're living for the things that lead to your death, well, that's no good, is it? If you're living for the things that will hurt you, that's no good. But if you start living for the Spirit of God, then you will put to death the behaviors that would lead to your death. And so what you need to do, or you need to die 
to those things that will lead to your death. Let me give you a totally ridiculous example, okay? Let's just suppose that, that you're married and you just love, you, I mean, you absolutely love to scream at your spouse. I mean, there's just something therapeutic in your mind about screaming and yelling at and cursing at the person that you promised to love. And let's suppose that I came along and I, and I said, hey, um, you, you do know what you're doing, right? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I've got a lot of pent-up anger. I'm getting it out of my system. I know what I'm doing. And I'd say, well, you're doing something else, too. Well, you might say, well, what do you think I'm doing? And I would tell you, well, you're killing your marriage. You're poisoning your marriage. Your marriage is supposed to be a loving relationship, not a hateful relationship. You're poisoning it with... Your bad attitudes and your harsh sounds and, and, and the viciousness that's coming out of your mouth. And, and if you're not careful, you're, you're going to kill it. You might ask, well, what should I do? And I'd say, well, you, you know, you've got this pent-up anger, I know, that's sort of within you. and You've got these bad attitudes. You need to deal with that. Well, you need to say, how, how do I deal with it? I don't, I don't know if I can get rid of it. It's sort of a part of me. And I would suggest that you do this. That just for today, just today, kill it. Die to it. That anger, that viciousness, that harshness that comes out of your mouth, just die to it today. Just today. Instead, put your mind on good things. Put your mind on God. I want you to replace the wickedness that you're so used to. Replace it with something else. I want you to think about God. and Think about how much He loves you. Think about how much He cares for you. Think about the price that Jesus paid on the cross for you. To bring you to God. I want you to think about God and how the Spirit of God dwells within you. Put your mind on Him and you'll put to death the deeds of the flesh. Verses 13 and 14 continue. It says, But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These two verses teach something incredibly powerful. You see, two things automatically happen when you set your mind on the Spirit of God. When you set your mind on the Spirit of God, the first thing that happens is you automatically put to death the deeds of the flesh. The second thing that happens when you put your mind on the Spirit of God is this. You're automatically following God. All you have to do is set your mind on the Spirit of God. That's it. That's it. That's all you have to do. 
By doing that, you will be putting to death the deeds of the flesh and you will be following God. And so let me explain exactly what I mean here. Let's suppose, just another example, that you found that you struggle with being too critical. You're just overly critical of others. And someone's told you that, or you sort of sense that, and you know it's a problem. And so let's just suppose you struggle with being too critical. Here is what not to do. I need to stop being so critical. I criticize people all the time. I'm just too critical. I have a critical spirit. I hate being critical. And now look what I'm doing. I'm being critical of myself. I wish I wasn't so critical. My critical spirit makes me so angry. I hate my critical spirit. I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate it when people tell me I'm too critical. I hate church. I hate God. You see, if you focus on your problems, then your problems become your focus. And you'll never get out of that rut. Never. You're trying to battle the flesh with your flesh. Doesn't work. Instead, here's what you should do. Every day, set your mind on the Spirit of God. Set your mind on the Spirit of God. Well, how do you do that? I mean, exactly how do you do that? Here's a few things you can do. First of all, you can pray to God and yield yourself to God. And you tell God that. God, today, I yield myself to you. I'm letting you go first. I'm going to put myself second. And so, Father, you're first. And I yield myself to you. And you say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me like a wind fills a sail and blows the sailboat wherever the wind wants to go. Let me be, let, let me be that kind of boat. Fill me. And take me wherever you want me to go. Spirit of God, I trust you. Praying something like that can help you set your mind on the Spirit of God. Here's something else that can help you do that. Reading your Bible. Reading your Bible. Asking God to speak to you. As you read your Bible, before you read your Bible, just say, Spirit of God, speak to me. And just read a chapter. Read a section of God's Word. Do this faithfully. Here's something else you can do to help you set your mind on the Spirit of God. Attend church faithfully. I know I'm preaching to the proverbial choir here at church. But attend church faithfully. Because the more that you attend uh, a church that believes and teaches the Word of God and that is in good fellowship with one another, this is what happens. The more you do that, the more that God's Word will fill your spirit and the more that God's people will have an encouraging and uplifting effect on your life. Now, I want to warn you of something. I want to warn you this way, that once you decide to get serious with God on a daily basis and begin to uh, seek to set your mind on the Spirit of God, your outer flesh will not be happy with that. Your outer flesh is only happy when you serve it. Your outer flesh will only be satisfied, and not for long, but your only, outer flesh will only be satisfied 
when you are engaging in the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. But as soon as you get serious with God, your outer flesh will start craving like, hey, where's my attention? I'm right here. And some of those old problems with pride and those old problems with, with uh, whatever feels good to do, those, those old problems of coveting will start to creep back in. And this will be a battle that you engage in. But you have to decide every, every single day, which one are you going to feed? Are you going to feed the outer flesh or are you going to feed the inner person? Because whichever one you feed, that's the one that will grow strong. And the other one over time will begin to grow weak. Now verse 14 also talks about being led by the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to skip this because it's very important. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? The word led, to be led by someone, in the Bible is most often associated with shepherding. But a shepherd leads his sheep. He is guiding his sheep, most often to a green field where they can be nourished well. Or sometimes he's leading his sheep into a pen where they can be protected. But you know what? Sometimes, and it's the nature of sheep, sometimes sheep don't want to go to a new field. They like the field that they're in. And the shepherd says to the flock, follow me. Follow me to a new field. But the sheep are hesitant sometimes, and they, they refuse to change. And it doesn't matter if the field that they currently reside in is uh, all dried up, eaten away, and it doesn't even matter what the shepherd wants. The flock wants to stay put. And so essentially, sometimes when the shepherd says, follow me, they respond by saying, no, you follow us, we're staying put. And it becomes apparent after a while that the sheep are telling the shepherd what to do. And it's not about resisting change. It's about resisting the shepherd. When we are led by the Holy Spirit, it means that He is Christ, the great shepherd in us. And as our shepherd, He guides us. To be guided always means to move. It always means to move forward. Adopting to a new environment into which He leads us. And, and there's something else that the shepherd always does for His sheep. And I mentioned it briefly. He protects His sheep. And we like that because we feel like we need the protection of God, and we do. But I want you to understand something. We are protected by God, both individually and collectively as a church, as long as we follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Protection does not come with staying put. Protection comes with remaining with our shepherd. And if he says, follow me, and begins to walk, we need to walk with him. If our shepherd is moving forward, the safest place for us to be is with our shepherd. You know, when Jesus called disciples to himself, very many times he said the same two words, follow me. And then he got moving. And he took Peter... He took James, he took John, 
and took all the rest of the disciples, anyone who would follow him, into new environments. And they had to drop what they were doing. They dropped their nets. They dropped their tax collecting. And they followed Jesus into a brand new thing. And I'm sure it was uncomfortable change. But they did it because the shepherd said, follow me. Not once in scripture did Jesus ever say to someone, I'll follow you. I'll do what you want. I'll do your will. Not once. Jesus was very consistent. You do my will. You follow me as I follow the Father, Jesus said. Being led by the Spirit of God means that He is our guide. He is our protector. So let's keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 14 has another powerful key. There's so much packed in these few verses. You see, as, as we pursue God, and as we are led by the Spirit of God, we show ourselves to be children of God. You prove yourself to be a child of God. That is incredible. God calls us His children. What a privilege. And you might say, well, you know, how, how in the world can this be? I thought I was a son of Adam. And we see what kind of mess Adam made of things, right? Because I've inherited all this stuff from Adam. The death, and, and there's all the sin in the world, and we're no longer within the very presence of God in the Garden of Eden, but we're outside of that. I thought I was a child of Adam, and that, that's right. And that's the way things used to be, but now God has made you a child of Him. You've received the Holy Spirit in your inner person, and that means you've been adopted by God. Verse 15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I want you to think about these two things that Paul mentions in this verse, in verse 15. He mentions two very different relationships, slavery and adoption. Both of these relationships are, that, that you think about, they have something in similar. There's somebody over each one. There's somebody over the slave, and it's the master. But there's also somebody over the adopted child. And it's the loving Heavenly Father. Very different kinds of relationships. A slave always has to be a little bit in fear of the master over him. That he might please the master over him. That he fears that he might disappoint the master over him. That he might be punished by the master over him. But the adopted child has no such fear very different kind of relationship. You see, you used to be a slave to sin. That means that sin owned you like a master owns a slave. It means that sin mistreated you like a master might mistreat a slave. It means that sin had trapped you like a master might trap a slave, giving no room for escape. It means that sin kept you in bondage like a master does a slave. No way for you to purchase your freedom. But then Jesus came. Then Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, He paid for all of your sins, and He paid to redeem you. He paid to set you free. He paid 
so that sin was no longer your master, but that he became your master. And much more than a master, he became your brother because you became adopted by God the Father. Now sin doesn't own you anymore, but God has adopted you. And God will never mistreat you. He will never mistreat you, for you are his child, and God has set you free. Historically, throughout history, when, when an adoption occurs, that means that all the previous relationships are cut off. No more. Whoever used to be your biological mom or dad, no longer is your biological mom or dad because you are adopted into a new family. Forever cut off from the former. Historically, that's the way it's been. Spiritually, that's exactly the way it is. Because now we have a father. and He's brand new to us that we didn't know before. But now that we've received Christ, now that we believe in Christ, now that we have the Spirit of God Himself dwelling within us, we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba, it, it's an Aramaic word. And it means Father. And so we have this picture, and you might say, well, why does it say it in Aramaic and then in English? You know? And originally, the New Testament was written in Greek. Why, why would it say it in, in Aramaic and then in Greek, the same word? Why wouldn't it just say Father? Why Abba, Father? I need you to understand that when these Christians in the first century were gathered together, that they didn't have an entire Bible like we do. The New Testament was still being written. They didn't have the entire Bible like we do. And the, but they would gather together because they had one thing. They had the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And that means they had a common Father. They didn't have sanctuaries yet. This room that we're in, they wouldn't know what to do with it. They didn't have that. They didn't have a baptistry to be baptized in. They didn't have all the hymns and the songs of the faith that we've developed over all of the centuries. What they had was a simple message of salvation that they said yes to, and the Spirit of God dwelled within them. And now they have a Heavenly Father. And so they would gather together every Sunday. Why Sunday? Because that's the Lord's day. That's the day that Jesus showed himself over and over and over after he was resurrected. He showed himself on, that, on one Sunday after the next. It became known as the Lord's Day. And they would gather together on the Lord's Day. And they would worship their Heavenly Father who had adopted them into their family. They would worship him together in someone's home or under a tree or over by the river where they would baptize people and they would cry out as adopted children to their Heavenly Father in both Aramaic and Greek. Abba HaPater, they would say. And they would gather together, a small group or a big group, and raise their hands to their Heavenly Father and say, Abba HaPater, Abba HaPater. Because this is what they knew. They knew one thing. They had God as their Father. And it conveyed this meaning. If 
we were to say it in English. My father, my dear, dear father. And this is what they knew. That type of intimacy with God. We take the God of the entire universe, the God that created every supernova, the God that created the solar system and the sun and the earth and the birds and all the crawling creatures and every single molecule and every single atom and every single proton and every single quark, the God that created all of this loved me so much that he became a human and he died on the cross for me and now I'm adopted into his, heaven, into his family. He is my heavenly father now. This God, I want to embrace this God. And that type of intimacy is the complete opposite of a slave's fear for his master. I don't know what your relationship with your dad was like. And you might be the toughest, strongest guy in this room. But I know one thing for sure. Because there's a part of you in here, in this inner person, that needs an intimate relationship with your dad. And sometimes earthly dads fail us. But I want you to know, you have a heavenly father who says to you, son, daughter of mine, I love you no matter what you've done. You can talk to me about anything that deepest, darkest secret that nobody in this world will ever know, you can talk to me about it, God says. I'm your heavenly father. That terrible, terrible thing that you did such a long time ago, I forgive you. The price has been paid. I do not judge you. I love you. You, period. I'm always here for you. Anything that you need, call on me. That's our Heavenly Father. That's His attitude toward us. We don't deserve it. But we can imagine why those early Christians would say to one another as they praise the Lord, Abba, Hapater, Father, my dear Father. They just loved him. Don't you just love him? He's our Heavenly Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Think about this. The Holy Spirit, who is God. The Holy Spirit is God who dwells spiritually within us. 
the Holy Spirit testifies. What's the Holy Spirit testify to? What's the Holy Spirit a witness of? The Holy Spirit is a witness. Did he witness a murder? Did he witness a car accident? No, he witnessed something else. The Holy Spirit witnessed. He's a testifier to this one fact. You're a child of God. You and I are children of God. But we're more than that. We're more than just children of God. I mean, that would be enough. But God has said to us, you're not just a child of mine. You are an heir. Everything that I have, God says, you're an heir to. You'll inherit it all. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. I want you to think about that. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. That means he's the only one who's completely, uniquely the Son of God. He is in his very nature God. And he's the only one, the only human who is in his very nature God. None of us are only begotten sons of God. Only Jesus. He's the only human who is in his very nature God himself. He's the only begotten son of God. And so obviously Jesus will inherit everything that the Father has done. Right? But guess what? God has said to us, I'm adopting you into my family. And you will be fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. But did you check out the last part of verse 17? It says that we must suffer with Jesus so that we can be glorified with Jesus. Suffer with Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, what's the nature of our suffering that we have to Suffer with Jesus. I mean, I have to be crucified, literally crucified, like Jesus was in order to inherit. No, it doesn't mean exactly that. You see, some, some believers in Christ, they, they suffer because they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And some have even gone to that extent of being crucified, just like Jesus was. But all of us, as believers in Christ, we suffer in, in the sense of having to face this world's opposition. The devil's opposition. In all of this world that follows the devil's leadership, we, we are opposed at every turn. But there's another way that we suffer. And I think it's this way that fit, best fits the context of what Paul's saying here. We suffer in this struggle between our outer flesh and our inner person. And if we are willing to fight that fight, and to walk in step with the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, we prove ourselves to be children of God. There's coming a day in which all of this world, this universe really, will be recreated and made free of sin. Our bodies even be recreated. We'll have glorified bodies dwelling with our Heavenly Father, forever and ever. And there's a verse that talks about 
that there's something that happens at the very end of time, if we can consider time to have an end. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Because that entire chapter talks about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection be just like Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end. When he, that's Christ, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he, Christ, has abolished all rule and all authority and power. There's coming a day when Jesus will come back. And Jesus, upon his return, will begin to abolish all other authority. And he will even abolish Satan to the lake of fire. Everyone who does not want to follow Jesus, Jesus will give them their desire. And they will likewise go into the lake of fire. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then we will begin to experience a new Jerusalem. A new heaven and a new earth. With everything the last few chapters of Revelation talks about. What an incredible couple of chapters that will be. And then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, then Jesus, after he has abolished all other rule and authority, and he himself is king over this incredible kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says that he will take all of that And offer it to God, the Father. Essentially saying, I've done this for you. What an incredible moment that will be. I would love for you to be there. To see it. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be. If you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be.